Hello, good evening everyone and welcome to the Science Museum for this special one-off event about the science of music. You all excited about that? Wow, that is exciting. In this heat, that's pretty impressive. Uh, so uh, we are going to welcome uh, shortly uh, Joe Stilgo and Philip Ball. Um, my name's John Milton. I'm going to be moderating and keeping an eye on the events tonight and generally uh, hoping to keep things sensible and keeping things moving. So if you like science and you like music, you're in for a treat. If you don't like science and you don't like music, you've made some choices. Wrong choices. Um, so uh, hopefully uh, the next hour should be thoroughly entertaining for you all. Um, we're very pleased to be joined tonight by our special guest, uh, science writer and editor for Nature Journal, uh, author of The Music Instinct and all-round polymath Philip Ball, and the super-talented musical force of nature that is Joe Stilgo. He's coming on, say the claps. He's enjoyed sellout runs at Edinburgh, uh, starred at the Old Vic, appeared at the Royal Albert Hall, and even performed uh, before royalty at Windsor Castle. So without further ado, and this is your cue, please welcome to the stage Philip Ball and Joe Stilgo! Hello, Philip. Hello, Joe. Uh, please feel free to take a seat before we get started. I am going to explain what we're going to be doing over the next hour. Uh, so, uh, this is for your benefit, obviously, they know. Um, so, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to break it up into three sections. Uh, we'll start by looking at music and mood, what makes a happy song happy and a sad song sad. Our second segment will examine the art of improvisation, how you do it and what's going up on upstairs when you do it. And then at the end, we'll have the big grand finale, it says here. I think that's one bigger than a grand finale, a big grand finale. So uh, something to look forward to. So first thing, I'm going to start with Philip. Uh, you're the author of The Music Instinct. Now, can you tell us a bit more about what the book explores, please? It explores this extraordinary thing that probably everyone here, just about everyone, is capable of doing, which is hearing a bit of music and making sense of it. Hearing it as music, because it's an extraordinarily complicated acoustic signal. And yet, we have this incredible capacity for not just making sense of it, but for having an emotional response to it as well. People are often able, from just a quarter of a second of music, to tell what genre it is, and sometimes what song it is, from just a quarter of a second. How on earth do we do that? So that's really what the book is about, how our brains uh, make sense of music and turn it into something that's comprehensible and musical and, uh, and moving. And really what I wanted to, to say is that what, what this really means is that we are all musical. There is this tendency in our culture to divide up music between the consumers and the b b people like Joe who do it. And um, I think that uh, that's, it's a shame that we see it that way. Some other cultures, some non-Western cultures, don't have that division at all. Everyone makes music. And I wanted to say that actually we are all involved 
as creative participants in that process of hearing music. Our brains are doing amazing things to allow us to, to perceive it. So really, I wanted the book to give us all more credit for what's going on that we just take for granted. That's brilliant. We'll be hearing more about that later on. Uh, Joe. So, Joe, this is a fusion of science and music. What do you hope to get out of tonight? I, um, is this on? Yes. Hello. <laughs> I hope to get respect from my brother, who is not here, but he is an actual scientist. And so I feel like very much the black sheep of this particular family in this particular room. Um, but I met Phil um, on a panel with Brian Cox, who is a unheard of scientist and we got really interested because I've, I've sort of done what I do without ever really thinking about it without ever really discussing it with anyone who knows what they're talking about plenty of people come up after gigs and we try to talk about something this man has not only written a book about that particular you know particularly what goes through your brain as you're performing music or listening to music but also is a musician himself and actually knows more than, you know, can actually describe and explain to people rather than just writing a book. So mm. I really wanted to do this because I wanted to work with Phil again and, and sort of muck around at the piano and, and try to claw back my uh, double C in combined science, two for C. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's good. Double C. Uh, <laughs> and Phil, uh, the same question to you. What, what do you hope to get out of Well, you know, I, d I don't know if there was anyone here who was in the last talk with uh, Louise Brown and Roger God, uh, Godson about um, IVF, but uh, Joe played Louise Happy Birthday. But he didn't just play Happy Birthday, he played a, um, a medley of songs that people in the audience had chosen, and you're going to be doing the same thing tonight. And I am really fascinated by how on earth he does it. I mean, you know, I know I've written this book about it, but I still don't quite get how Joe fits the entire encyclopedia of music, it seems to me, into his mind. And so I'm hoping to pick your brains a bit, Joe. You said you did know, and that's the reason I'm ah. here. <laughs> <laughs> St steady, steady. <laughs> Let's not turn ugly this early on. Uh, so um, we're going to look at happy songs in just a second. So before we do that, I'm going to ask you, what are your favourite pieces of uplifting music? So Joe, if you go first. Oh, it, uh, you didn't put warn us about this. Um, <laughs> uplifting music. It depends what everyone will say, what mood you're in, and that's why we make playlists. And, uh, it could be anything from Danny Boy, which is the best tune ever written, um, either sung by an old man with his eyes shut in the back of a pub or played by the brass band in brass shop or an orchestra. Or it's probably, if, if I want to really uplift myself onto a dance floor, it'd be September by Ed Vinatello. Good choices. Yeah. Phil, you've had some time yeah. to think about oh this. Oh, God, yeah, well, you know, well, I mean, <laughs> a few seconds. as soon as I did, you know, so many things um, suggested themselves, and I, so, first of all, I thought I, one thing that really up, uplifts me is um, the Johnny Hodges Orchestra's version of Empty Ballroom Blues on Three Shades of Blue, that version in particular. And then I thought, well, and then there's Not the Hoople's Golden Age of Rock and Roll that just always does it. And I don't know if anyone knows Ministry, Jesus Felt My Hot Rod. If you don't listen to it, you really must. And I thought, you know, what on earth <laughs> have they got in common? Um, uh, but they kind of had because 
one thing that's very important to all of them uh, and that is often overlooked when music is talked about because we talk about rhythm, we talk about melody, we don't talk enough about timbre, about the quality of sound, the kind of sound it is, you know, what distinguishes a saxophone from a piano from someone's voice. And all of those, uh, in, in their different ways, all of those pieces have somehow an uplifting timbre. It's sharp, it's cutting. One of the most uplifting pieces I ever heard, actually, was by an American composer called Glenn Branca, who composes for vast ensembles of distorted electric guitars playing one note, and everyone is playing a different note. And it sounds like some people's worst nightmare. And I went along because I was quite intrigued by it. And it sounds like a Messerschmitt landing or something, the most amazing sound, but incredibly uplifting. And it was all about timbre. Wow. Okay, so it's time for some music, I think. Uh, Joe, if I can ask you yep. to go up to the uh, piano, please. Uh, now, Joe is going to perform a mashup of happy songs. Indeed. <laughs> now, we are going to get some <laughs> suggestions from you, the audience. Yes, sorry Dangerous. about that, Joe. Oh. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, we need some suggestions of happy, uplifting songs. So, they can be from any genre. And we're going to pick uh, two or three. Is that okay, Joe? One's fine. <laughs> <laughs> for a mashup, anyway. Um, okay, so shout out as many as you can. Yes. Okay. Okay. So we can do the first three. Yeah, yeah that sounds good. Yeah, yeah. Feeling good. Uh, so do you? Yeah. Hey, hey don't say no. <laughs> <laughs> You can have pay you later. <laughs> uh, I don't know any of these. I thought that would as we're moving on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that that pressure was even worse. Singing in the rain. Singing in the rain. You can feel it all. the sky you know how I feel sun in the sky you know how I feel only singing in the rain and Sir Duke knows how I feel it's a new <laughs> dawn it's a new life it's a new song for and I'm feeling Sir Duke. I'm going to tail off here, John. You just, just dive right in. Um, 
Okay, so uh, we've got some we've got some questions for you between the two of you now. Yeah. So uh, let's start with you, Joe. Uh, what makes a happy song happy? Well, look, it's really I really like that. It's really good. It's not the happy song I've got, uh, but it's an uplifting song. It's in the minor. So you normally say like with your first music lesson, happy songs are major, aren't they? And sad songs are minor. So if it was... But it's almost like that song doesn't let you be that happy at the start. The lyrics is a, not really what we're talking about here. The lyrics kind of provide the uplift. Uh, so do you, Stevie Wonder, never, even when he was crying, couldn't make a sad song? Because <laughs> the way he sang, the way the records were produced, going back to Phil's thing about Candle, you know, they... That music was made for people to dance to, and then the songwriting took over. But that riff. It's kind of like the wheels on the bus. And then uh, singing in the rain, I would say, um, I mean, it's part nostalgia for the tune, but also is a really sort of like playground, really simple tune for everyone to hum. And then the memory of Gene Kelly singing it probably makes you feel happy. Um, But if I've got, I mean, there's a very boring story, but they'd written that song ages before the film was made. Uh, and it was a quite normal, not, not particularly a big hit, Sing in the Rain in the 30s. And they said we could make a film about, you know, about the Gene Kelly thing about about Hollywood. And he actually on set started going, well, how about... Doo, 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 doo. So Gene Kelly kind of wrote that as he was sort of walking to the to be filmed, and they went to put it in. So that was the, that was the song. Pleasure. Not known. Good story. Uh, okay, so Phil, I'm going to throw this over to you. What do you think makes a happy song happy? Well, you, we were talking about uplifting songs, um, which is slightly different but similar. And um, what makes so what makes those songs uplifting? Well, it's literally true. Joe, can you just sing the first um, line of the melody of um, Singing in the Rain? I'm singing. I'm singing is an octave jump. That is a really big jump and a really unusual jump to find in a melody. Most of the the jumps from one note to the next are small pitch steps. Nearly all melodies have, uh, almost all of the steps are small. But you start this song going up. Not just going up a bit, going up a whole octave. So it's literally uplifting. It's giving us an oral equivalent of that lift. Uh, You could have said um, somewhere over the rainbow. A lot of people will find another uplifting song. How does that start? Another octave jump. So it's kind of mimicking in the shape of the music the, 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 the emotion that we're wanting to invoke. And that generally is what not just happy songs do and uplifting songs, but sad songs too. We're mm. going to come on to those later. But it's, a, uh, a, a, it's an oral mimicry 
Um, so this is what gives the song a general sort of happiness. And it's, you know, all of those songs too, they're, they're quite fast. They're, they're kind of motoring along. They're pretty bubbly. The, um, the, the tonality is quite high-pitched. So all of those things are kind of mimicking the physicality of someone who feels happy, of mm. someone who feels uplifted. Um, so it, it is that sort of um, imitation of, um, of, of what we associate with happiness. Um, one psychologist once said, way back in the 1930s, when they started studying psychologists, uh, psychology of music, said, um, music sounds how emotions feel. And I think that's a, a key aspect of what gives music at least its mood. Now, we, we'll go into, uh, I, I, I'm sure, a, a little while, and into some more specific aspects of why music has those incredibly intense peaks and things like mm. that. That's something slightly different. But in terms of the general, why we would say this is a happy song or this is a sad song, it's mimicking that physicality. So in terms of happy music, what purpose does it serve? What, what does it do for us? Well, uh, we might kind of think, you know, we're going to be attracted to happy music. But actually, again, when you think about it, we're also attracted to sad music. Um, we, listen, we put on sad music to listen to and not necessarily to make us feel sad. In fact, it probably isn't to make us feel sad because if we genuinely feel sad, we don't want to go there. So what is it that's going on when we say this is a happy piece of music and a sad piece of music? It, either way, it makes us feel good. There's something about it that makes us return to it again and again. And of course, it would be absurd to classify all music as either happy or sad. Most music is neither um, or alternates between the two or might sound angry or might even sound ugly at some stage. Um, but whatever it is, we want it. And we've always wanted it, and all cultures want it. So that really the question is, why? Why do we want it? And there are various levels on which you can answer that. And one of them is evolutionary. Um, why do we have music in the first place? Why is it that every single human culture that we know of has and has had music? Um, and it, you know, the, the, the impulse is to say there must be some evolutionary benefit, some adaptive benefit, or at least that's the impulse if you're an evolutionary biologist, that it must do us good. It must have done us good somewhere in our past. Um, but that's been controversial. No one actually knows, and we probably will never know what the origin of music is, and there may not be a single origin, but there are many theories. Um, and, um, you know, one of them, Darwin, uh, thought that music was something to do with sexual selection. Look at me, how talented I am, um, how big my guitar is, um, or my piano. Good news, and, Joe. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and, um, but, you know, there, there are other ideas. People thought that it was to do with developing a sense of community. Um, on the other hand, some people, notoriously Stephen Pinker, the cognitive um, uh, scientist, has said, Music may now have no adaptive benefit. Mm. What it may be is something that's piggybacking on, like almost like a parasite on other impulses that we have and that music just happens to make use of. He said music was uh, famously or notoriously that it's like auditory cheesecake, that we, you know, we, 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 um, we cram cheesecake not because we need it, but because we're evolutionary hardwired to grab onto fats and sugars. Yeah. And maybe music is like that. 
He may be right, um, but I think there are now some reasons to believe that actually it may have an adaptive benefit of some sort. And I think it's clear that whatever it is, it has to do with the fact that we are instinctive pattern keepers. That's how we make sense of our environment, both in terms of what we hear and what we see. And music plays with that. It plays, um, it, you know, there is a clear adaptive benefit to finding regularities, to thinking, if I see this, this is going to follow. If I hear the call of, an, of, a, of a, you know, saber-toothed tiger, I probably ought to get going. And the music is, uh, is, is playing with those, um, those impulses. So that's one answer, evolutionary, mm. in evolutionary terms. But um, in immediate terms, um, what music seems to be doing, particularly when we have those intense musical experiences, we, we know something about the neurological response to it. And it has been shown uh, by brain scanning that in intense moments of music, that we, we, uh, the same circuits in our brain are activated that are activated when we are doing something, wh when uh, we have sex, when we're having food, or when we're taking drugs. Um, and so, you know, literally, you're getting a high from the music. Um, why, it, why should that be? You know, that comes back to the adaptation. But whatever the reason is, it is literally giving you a little flood of, of good feeling, of, of euphoria. I feel like it's time for a little flood euphoria. of euphoria. <laughs> should we yeah. give them a, before we move on to sad songs, should we give them a quick hit? Would that be nice? Can I just play something that's been on my mind? All the time you're saying that, Phil. Not that I wasn't listening, but it was—it uh, <laughs> <laughs> was making me. What you do, Phil, when you talk is you make uh, me and probably everyone here you're sparking off other things. A, a song that's going around my head because I've got a three and a half year old daughter. But this is a classic song that will make everyone very happy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, say, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you, look at them all happy. <laughs> if you're happy and you know it, and you really want to show it. But that made me think. Very good. But that made me think. Because we're all happy because we remember that, and it's a shared collective memory. So maybe that's not music at all. That's just a sort of commu community-based thing. But then I was thinking, if we're in Russia where they prefer minor keys. Is anyone from Russia here? No? Good. I can, uh, <laughs> I can really just talk absolute bollocks. And, uh, but I was just thinking if, you know, the sort of Cossack classic folk music would be like this. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it, then you really want to show it. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. They're equally happy. But that was a minor version <laughs> of, of happiness. So I feel like it's done euphoria I, in, in a way. I feel that we've had enough happiness now. Yeah. It's time to move on to misery. Uh, so it's time for sadness. Uh, so we need suggestions from the audience for sad songs. Yesterday, Bloody Beatles, any, any, uh, any others? Shout out, feel free to just a shout out. Did, why does it always rain on me, uh, Travis? What, yesterday, someone's... Uh, uh, do you need the Justin Timberlake one? Or the <laughs> Quite sad. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yesterday, um, 
why does it always rain on me? Find me rich. Yep. Is this supposed to make people sad? <laughs> or yes. just shuffle around? Yes, we want actual yeah. sadness. It'll make me sad when I get the chords wrong. Yesterday. All my troubles seem so far away. Now it looks as though they're here to stay. Oh, I believe in yesterday. Why does it always rain on me? Is it because I lied when I was 17? Why does it always rain on me, even when the rain is falling, I can hear you calling, oh, Just to prove you do Go on and cry me a river Cry me a river I cried a river Sorry, I forgot the Travis words, but they're deep, deep back in there somewhere. <laughs> So, um, oh, sorry, Phil's here. Um, <laughs> Phil, um, why are we drawn to sad music? That, you know, that is such a, a, a fundamental question, I think, about music generally. Because, like I say, it's not hard to understand why we want the euphoria and the happiness. But what are we after in sad music? And yet we are drawn to it. Now, you know, one possibility is that it's cathartic, um, that it's cathartic. Um, and by what I mean by that is not that we can dissolve in floods of tears and somehow feel better afterwards, although that may happen, but more that um, what are we when we hear a piece of sad music, I mean, you know, we're hearing music with sad lyrics, so that kind of tells us. But, of course, there's plenty of sad pieces of music that are just instrumental. Um, so, you know, w w what are we... Um, what are we, what, where is the sadness located? And it, it could be that um, in seeing the, the music as sad, it's not a, a sadness about anything. It allows us to explore that emotion without actually having anything tragic associated with it. And, um, and uh, you know, so, so there, 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 there's something... Um, there's something that sort of seems to draw us. It's like a, almost like a, a, an ability to rehearse that emotion without anything really at stake. But I don't think we... Th th so that's one possibility. But, you know, I don't think we really understand um, why we're drawn to it. I think what's what interests me also is that we are powerless against it. Um, that we, we can be made sad by bad sentimental music. In fact, sometimes that works best of all. And, you know, you know the experience of sitting in a film and, it's, and it, it's, it's beachy, say, and you know 
how manipulated you're being in this death scene and the sad music kicks in and the strings kick in and can we do anything about it? No, we can't. We, there's no way we can you know, hold those, those tears back. And that's really interesting because it suggests that music bypasses the rational brain, the cognitive brain, and goes straight to the emotion centers. And that makes sense if, it's, if, if at least part of what music is about is drawing on an adaptive evolutionary impulse that doesn't have, didn't have the luxury of, of standing around and saying, was that cry a hyena or was it some little creature I needn't be worried about? No, you just have to kick straight in and get the adrenaline going. And so, you know, the, the, the circuitry goes straight from ear to emotion center and we act. And music seems to be able to do that. Um, so Tolstoy said music is a shorthand um, to the emotions. Um, and, uh, you know, that's what often uh, composers are relying on and playing with, that really they <laughs> have it in their palms. Mm. So in terms of happy songs, sad songs, it, it, is there a scientific formula that we can apply to create the perfect happy song or the perfect sad song? Needless to say, if there was, it would have been done, and people have tried it, um, and they ha clearly haven't got very far. In fact, there was a nice um, program, you, some of you may have seen it, by Armand Leroy, who's uh, an, a, a biologist here at Imperial, an expert at Imperial, where he was trying to do that. He was trying to um, see if he could uh, find an algorithm that would generate, in that case, not the perfect happy or sad song, but the perfect hit. Okay, so you just figure out, you just analyze loads of hits and see statistically what they have in common, and then you stick that in somehow to your song. Of course, it didn't work, and it doesn't work. Um, so, I mean, and this is what, you know, I love about music, that in fact, what you seem to get if you try to do that is a kind of regression to the mean where you get something that's kind of okay, but, you know, it, it doesn't hit the spot. Mm. Um, that there's something ineffable, really, about music that seems to resist that kind of analysis. Um, because, you know, in a way, uh, if you think of um, a lot of musical hits, they rely on surprise. They rely on something new. You know, that's what certainly changes the game in music, is, is not someone doing what's been done before. Mm. Um, so I think that's what's so great about music, that we can, we can science it as much as we like, but I don't think we're quite going to get to the bottom of it that way. Are we allowed to say that in the Science Museum? Um, <laughs> anyway, um, Joe touched on it earlier on about um, different cultures and nationalities and how they approach uh, happy songs or sad songs. Does that have an effect? Does, that, does, does it change from uh, cultures or nationalities? Well, that's the interesting thing about these generalized aspects of mood in music that I talked about, this mimicry of a happy person or a sad person. You know, those sad songs seem quite slow, quite softer. Often, the, either the melody or the, the chord structure or both is descending again. And these kind of... Uh, fairly, in some ways, fairly superficial aspects. I mean, in the sense that you can just read it off the surface of the music. Um, those seem to be universal. So that um, it's studies have been done to see whether, say, Western listeners can 
can, can guess what the intended mood is of quite unfamiliar music from Kyrgyzstan or somewhere, and we're not bad at it. And the reverse has been done as well. So Western music was played to a remote tribe called the Mafa in the Cameroon, who must be one of the few people left on earth not to have heard Michael Jackson. And they, or any other Western music, but that's what you'd hear first. And, uh, and they uh, were also pretty good at, you know, judging whether it's happy or sad uh, mm. according to what a, a Western audience would, would believe. So those aspects do seem to be universal. But, of course, you know, when you start getting into detail, there's lots of room for uh, misunderstanding. And I mean, Joe, you played, you said, you, 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 you did the, um, the, the tune just then, the, the Cossack style, in a minor key. Um, and yet, you know, it was still kind of, um, it was, uh, you could still see it as kind of, you know, uh, uh, yes. And um, th those things, major and minor keys in particular, are, uh, uh, we have a, often an innate sense that, well, minor has to be sad and major has to be happy, but they don't. And in fact, two of those pieces you played as sad pieces were in major key. But, you know, we have that association, but other cultures don't. And we can often misread because of our own association. So Western listeners were played Balinese music, which happens to use a scale that's a bit like the minor scale. And so there they kind of misread the intended mood because of cultural reasons. So cultural conditioning is a very strong sort of overlay, of, um, you know, above those other more generalized aspects of music. That is time for our next section now. So we're going to move on. Sorry, I was reading and talking. I don't have uh, two skills, apparently. Um, so we are going to move on to uh, improvisation. Uh, so, Joe, you're quite well known for your improvisational skills. So we're going to put that to the test right now. And we need uh, some more suggestions from the audience. Hopefully they'll improve. Um, so what we want Joe to do this time is to take two songs and mash them into something new. So we'll ask you uh, firstly for song suggestions, uh, and it can be anything, whatever springs to mind, and then we'll ask for suggestions of composers, artists, and musicians. So Joe's challenge will to be play the song given in the style of the chosen composer or performer. So this could be Ace of Spades in the style of Mozart? Yes. Okay. I mean, don't forget you heard that. But. Can I just say, because everything you say, John, is suggesting the audience into a certain way of thinking. It doesn't have to be a song. Oh, okay. Can, you know, I'm still saying it doesn't have to be. A, it can just be a piece of music. So any, okay. any piece of music. So we're going to uh, we're going to divide you up. So th this side of the audience, you're going to suggest a piece of music. Okay. So just shout out, and uh, we'll just uh, Joe. I'll, uh, I'll let you pick one. So just shout out. I love <laughs> <laughs> Grandstand. <laughs> Grandstand. <laughs> We've got a young audience, didn't we? Yeah. No, I heard Grandstand and Mozart's Requiem. What, what Mozart's <laughs> I'm happy with Grandstand. Did I they mean, Grandstand suggest... Grandstand is the greatest piece of music ever written. And, uh, <laughs> and I suppose I've they met the guy who wrote it, and all I wanted to talk about was... Uh, do, you, do you think they suggested that because you were wearing Gareth Southgate's waistcoat? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I kind of look like Gareth Southgate at a bad party. So, uh, <laughs> I was wearing this before Gareth chose the waistcoat combo, so <laughs> I feel like you've taken your look. style chops. 
Um, so are you, what, 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 what have you doing? chosen? Yeah. Grandstand. <laughs> Grandstand? And okay. So over this side of the audience, uh, you're going to go for an artist, a singer, or a composer. So, in so the just style shout them of. out. Yeah, in the style of. In the style of. <laughs> what did you hear? I heard Kanye West and Prince. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Scriabin, yeah. Uh, good luck showing the audience what Scriabin sounds like. Uh, what do you want from those? I mean, I mean, I'd I'd like a bit of Kanye if I'm honest, because because Grandstand was made for that. To play, yeah, can you play hip hop on the piano? <laughs> yes. Very nice. So so. Can we do Prince? Yes. I mean, not that that's going to be any better, but I, <laughs> a bit nearer to my scope. Prince, Prince does Grandstand. <laughs> version of Prince. That's fantastic. something I do, by the way, that. That was not something I do ever again. That was, that was amazing. Um, I, th I think it's worthy of another round of applause, to be honest. It was so good. So, I'm you want to hear the Kanye version, but it's not going to happen. Uh, you can, well, we'll play that afterwards. Um, so, uh, I am conscious of the time. So, uh, quickly, uh, let's move on to Phil. Phil, what is Joe thinking when he improvises? Yeah, I do, exactly. Uh, what is he thinking? Um, <laughs> um, well... Uh, there haven't been many studies of improvisation from a neurological point of view yet, um, but there have been some. It's, it's starting, and it's quite tricky because you have to stick someone like Joe in an MRI scanner and give him a piano. That's, you can see the problem. But it has been done, and um, uh, what they've shown is very interesting. You can't just say, okay, you're in this MRI scanner, off you go, improvise, because pretty much whenever you're listening to or playing music, that whole brain goes crazy and lights up. So you have to compare uh, the brain doing that improvisation against playing a piece of, you know, reading a piece of music or playing a piece of music that you know, and then you subtract the two and you see what the differences are, and it's very interesting what they are. The, it, it seems that there are two key 
neurological circuits, brain circuits, that seem to be particularly active during improvisation. And one of them is called the default network. And that's kind of the, um, uh, as the name suggests, kind of the network that's active when you're not really doing anything, when you're not really thinking, your mind's wandering, you're slightly daydreaming, slightly sort of free associating. The other one is called the ex executive control network, which is kind of the opposite. It's um, what you're doing when you're very focused on a task. Um, and so it seems the default network is, is something that seems to be more generally involved in creativity, coming up with ideas. Um, the executive control network is then assessing those ideas. It's imposing some sort of control over them. So there are these two sort of opposite, almost like yin-yang um, uh, forces in, in, in action during improvisation. Now, uh, you know, as a bad improviser, um, e that seems, that feels right even to me. I don't know what that feels like to you, Joe, that it's kind of, you're having to somehow let part of your mind just go loose and, you know, come up with stuff, but part of it is, is absolutely on the ball. Does that ring true? Well, uh, I think if we had longer, I'm interested in is I'm kind of trying to use the therapy for what's going on because <laughs> I'm really I started off as a jazz musician so that level of improvisation is very different to what I'm doing now where I do have to think cognitively about what the lyrics are and maybe what the harmony is and what I'm, what I'm doing in playing it which I think probably if I'm in the MRI scan that's a very different picture to what we were you know what we wanted to talk about probably which is what jazz musicians have gone into there, mm. which is um, because part of what I'm doing is not improvising because I know the song, yeah. I know the tune grandstand. I vaguely sort of know how Prince might have played it if he would play grandstand on the <laughs> piano, which I know exactly he did like that. Like <laughs> <laughs> the pannier would come round and they'd just, they'd just watch Des Lynam and go, yeah, that was good, Des. That was the Des. Um, so I guess what we're talking about is, is the instrumental breaks is, um, um, you know, or, uh, you know, that I suppose the way it works, I mean, maybe, you know, you should say something about the way it works it, with jazz improvisation, because what you get, if you've got a jazz tune over, you've got the basic melodic structure and you've got the chords. Yep. And, you know, that's all when, when you see jazz musicians, if, you know, usually they're just playing with that in their heads, but even if they're using music, it's, it's just that, isn't it? It's just a single sheet, and they might be playing for, you know, 10, 15 minutes around that single thing. So the music isn't there in terms of what we normally think of as sheet music. It's just a basic structure. So the question is, you know, how are you using, uh, how are you developing that basic structure? How are you opening it out um, when there's actually, you know, nothing to tell you how to do that? Uh, well, it would it would probably be the same as if you go back to Bach and Scriabin and Mozart and anyone who's who's written music for the piano, say, because they would use a structure and then they would the, the way that classical music used to develop is that um, it would probably take a very simple chord structure and the melody would would progress through the piece of music. So what jazz musicians try to do is create excitement by starting off with a simple melody like. over those chords. Uh, the, the comp uh, you know, a more simple 
Yeah, I want you to use your default network now. Okay. So you can cut cut loose, you cut okay. free, switch off that blue scale. Can I keep my left hand going? Yep, if if okay. that helps. <laughs> <laughs> might say that sort of sounds like jazz but for me for me that sounds awful does it sound <laughs> it sounds awful to you <laughs> otherwise we're in trouble um, so can you bring the two together now so something where put a hopefully bit of it maintains some of the pleasing aspects of what I'm playing a bit of executive control on that on that freedom Fantastic. Okay, so it is time for our big grand finale, which, remember, is one bigger than the grand finale. So pretty special. Uh, so uh, this is going to be our final section of the night, and we're going to bring together the ideas we've explored already, and we're going to flip everything uh, on its head. So we are going to see if Joe can take a funereal piece of triumphant and upbeat storming outro, as it says here. And then we are going, it's easy for me to say, apparently not. Uh, this will involve getting some suggestions from you, the audience, uh, of miserable songs. And Joe, you're going to, uh, you're going to, well, you're going to make them upbeat, uh, apparently. So uh, let's, uh, let's have some hands, uh, some suggestions for truly non-triumphant dirges Utterly, utterly miserable music. <laughs> Anything by Dido, someone said. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you've got a you've got a long memory there. <laughs> What's that? 
Otis picked a Johnny Johnny Darko match. <laughs> Eminem Marla. stamp. Yeah, that's another rap song you're challenging the pianist to play. <laughs> Is any Johnny Smith? Um, I I clearly <laughs> <laughs> clearly don't listen to enough sat dirge music. Without you. Um, which one? <laughs> That's the one. Wow. That, I think we'll have to have that one. Yeah. I mean, and that, that made me feel sad. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It did. Um, <laughs> okay. What do I do? Um, so you, 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 you've, got to, uh, you've got to turn it into the most uplifting song that we've ever heard. A triumphant piece of music. It's quite triumphant, that piece. Anyway, I'm already, we're already hearing it, aren't we? The big hit. Um, and and uh, actually, let's add a bit of danger to this. Let's, let's make it more extreme. So if you could play the song with an improvised tangent. Uh, so if you can take that style and go something totally inappropriate. So a totally inappropriate composer. And uh, Phil... I can ask you to suggest that composer. So you, you take that dirge, make it triumphant, in the style of... Blimey. Um, so it's got to be totally inappropriate. Yes, um, has to, to be inappropriate. Totally inappropriate to something triumphant or something dirge-like. To, 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 this, to this particular piece of... To this okay, well, if it's music. Harry Nelson without you, I'm sorry, Joe, but it probably has to be Chaz and Dave. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> I feel like I have to um, tell everyone that I do not know the words to this song. <laughs> no, I can't forget the moment. When you ask for this song But I guess that's not the way these lyrics go <laughs> You're always shouting from that seat Come and play it, Joe <laughs> Play it, Joe I can't live If living is without you I can't live can't live anymore. <laughs> well, I can't forget this moment you pulled in. It's coming up a double time. Baby's on a moment. Hairiness is coming. Everybody's living in a joint. Good, too, for what you want to talk about. <laughs> I can't live if living is without you. Rabbit, 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 live. <laughs> What's it good, you're living if it's out, you. Harry Nilsson's out, you. Uh. Hey. I want to know how many people have never heard of Chaz and Dave before. Oh, I'm so sorry. I mean, that is a very odd thing you've just experienced. <laughs> Always like to uh, have a disclaimer about, about Chaz and Dave. Joe, I, c I can see them on Spotify right now, really. <laughs>
Is it one guy? (laughs) (laughs) Who's this and Dave guy? I think I think we've got just enough time to uh, to challenge you again one more time. You up for that, Joe? No. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Okay. So uh, same thing applies. Um, so an- another another terrible piece of music, funereal piece, uh, piece of dirge. Or by a, is, is that just your plans for this evening? Or or <laughs> by yeah, how do you feel about that one? Is that Nothing compares to you. It's from Sinead O'Connor. This is because this is the mm. Prince section here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, Karma Police, Fields of Gold. We've got some Radiohead, finally. <laughs> yes. Creep. 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 Yeah, Creep. Okay, let's go for Creep. Okay. And we, uh, we're going to go, we'll go upbeat with it again. And if you can choose another... Composer or artiste for us, please, Phil. Yeah, well, this one would be on the side of Leonard Cohen. <laughs> Wait, I'm going to have to Spotify that. Um, uh, how do you feel about that? Yes. <laughs> I'm just trying to remember the first bit of Creep. Sing it. Come on, I've someone. Got the chorus, but I can't think of the Someone, come on. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thelonious Monk doing Creep. Less well without the lyrics, but <laughs> I'm a creep. They're filming it. This is supposed <laughs> to be the big grand finale, and this, <laughs> and we've chosen Thelonious Monk, who people are also going. Who, is that, who play with Chaz and Dave? <laughs> 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 we could do creep in another style if that helps. Not saying it was wrong, Phil, but it's, uh, <laughs> you're going. Whoa. You're going. Yeah. Bossing over. Ah. Oh. Anyone speak Portuguese? <laughs> okay, I was just going to do some bad Portuguese, but I won't. Because <laughs> I'm a creep. I'm a winner. What the hell am I doing here? I don't, but ch- 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 I'm a creep. <laughs> <laughs> Get me a cocktail. <laughs> like I might die with you. You don't belong here. Call me Tuesday nights. I'm a creep. <laughs> I'm a creep. <laughs> and I told you once, I told you again. <laughs> I'm a creep. <laughs> So I'm afraid that is 
all we have time for tonight. Thank you ever so much. For, no, seriously, we'll have to close the doors. And it's not like night at the museum. It's just very dull and very awkward and uncomfortable for everyone involved. Um, so we, we have to say goodnight. But please put your hands together one last time for Philip Ball and Joe Stillgold. Thank you very much to both of you. Thank you.